Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've always said if you're going to have a Hall of Fame career, get it out of the way early. Theo Epstein has done that. As a 30-year-old general manager, he helped lead the Boston Red Sox to its first World Series title in 86 years, and then came over to the Chicago Cubs and helped break a 108-year drought last November, making himself the toast of the town. We thought this was the appropriate day to post this conversation as Theo and the Cubs are visiting with President Obama today in his final days in office. Theo Epstein, you you are a classic story of a guy who grew up on the right side of the tracks and and made (laughs) made good. Uh, uh, Tell me about your – I mean, I'm in completely – uh, engrossed in the fact of your grandfather and his brother writing my favorite one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, my my grandfather Philip and his identical twin Julie were a screenwriting duo. They uh, actually they went to Penn State together and were uh, boxing champions together <laughs> back when college boxing was. You're a, a thing. twin as well. I'm a twin as well, and my yeah. mom's a twin. So ah. three straight generations, and then they uh, they moved out to L.A and uh, became a writing team, ended up working for a long time for Warner Brothers and uh, had a real contentious relationship with Jack Warner, actually, um, and were called before the, um, the House Committee on, on uh, Un-American Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I that. mean, you know, the blacklist was vicious yeah. out there, so they were... They were embroiled in that, and at one point they were asked if they were members of any uh, communist organization, and they said yes. Warner Brothers. <laughs> um, so they were, but they weren't blacklisted. No, but they they stood up for their friends who were and mm-hmm. were sort of right on the line. But they, yeah, they wrote many movies together, um, including Casablanca. And my grandfather died in 1952, uh, so I never knew him. But Julie became um, sort of a surrogate father for for my dad and a surrogate grandfather to me and. Every time I would ask him about Casablanca and what made it so great, he would just say, ah, that one, same old crap. <laughs> so, he was, so he was really modest about it. But uh, we're very proud of it. And you know, he won the uh, Academy Award for it. And so that, um, that sits at my, you know, my dad's mantle. And everyone's yeah, along, with the, uh, along with the World Series trophy? Uh, along with, yeah, the 2004 World Series ring that I gave my dad. Yeah. That's cool. That's great. So your dad's a writer as well. Yeah, my dad's a longtime novelist and uh, the, uh, created the creative writing program at Boston University and has published many books. And probably the uh, King of the Jews is the best known. It was mm-hmm. on the New York Times bestseller list, a Holocaust novel. Writes a lot of historical fiction, mixes in a lot of Yiddish to make sure it's just about unreadable for most of the population. <laughs> 
but uh, he's he's a great author and teacher. So the question, and and your mom runs a a, a business as well. She 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 runs a clothing store. Yeah, my mom is kind of had the opposite upbringing of my dad. So my dad grew up in Hollywood um, because uh, because his parents, because his dad mm-hmm. worked in the movies. My mom um, grew up in Brooklyn and um, spent a lot of time uh, in and out of foster homes with her twin sister and um, had to start working um, during high school and was very much a self-made woman. And she ended up um, opening a, a women's clothing store. How did they meet? They met when my, my dad was uh, teaching an English class um, at Queens College at night, uh, sort of a, a, a night education class. And my mom's twin sister was taking the class, and she was married, but she she thought the teacher was handsome, so she told my mom to come audit the class. So, <laughs> she, so she came, and then they you know followed him home to the subway one time, and and they ended up. Uh, that's like a there. that's like a script. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it sure is. We tease them about that a lot. But so then my mom, you know, no no college whatsoever, but started this clothing store, you know, forty years ago with um with her twin sister and with their best friend in the studio apartment of the best friend. So it's called the studio and it's still still going. In Brookline. In Brookline, yeah. So she's Maybe we'll uh, drum up a little business. Yeah. And Harvard one time asked them to come teach a class on women in small business. Huh. And one year, she made more than my dad. My dad taking home a you know college professor's salary, and when the economy was really booming, my mom made more than my dad one year. And we all we all loved that because it was, <laughs> because he had the you know all the Yale Yale education and the postgraduate degree and everything. And my mom was a big success. So I guess the obvious question is, what the hell happened to you? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, my I don't know. My dad asked me that all the time. But yeah, he you know he he did push um, literature a lot and and um, in school in general and scholarship and um, he made us read a ton when we were growing up and I, and I thank him for that. But I my parents say I was always uh, in love with baseball. You know, from the time I was two years old. Um, they say I don't know if these stories are true or not, but they say I would attract a big crowd in Central Park, hitting home runs with a wiffle ball and wiffle ball bat and. Um, and when I was five, if they ever needed me to um, relax and calm down, they'd just sit me in front of a baseball game on TV. And they say when I was eight, they asked me what I wanted to do when I, when I grew up. And I said, well, I can't see myself being happy if I'm not working in baseball in some way. And, you know, I was just a typical kid growing up in Boston, uh, initially in New York and then Boston, uh, wanting to play shortstop for the Red Sox. And that pretty clearly didn't work out, so I had to <laughs> find another avenue. Now you, um, uh, we we spoke in the spring uh, down in Arizona, and you uh, you told me that one of the highlights of your youth was when the uh, when the program came out for uh, the computer game that the GM game, uh, GM and uh, so you could do trades. On yeah, that. yeah. So I, I grew up playing this game called Micro League Baseball, which was sort of the the computer version of Stratomatic. Yeah, baseball, like my so generation played Stratomatic. Yeah. So. And I played Stratomatic a little bit too. But when it was kind of a big deal, I remember when the Apple IIc came out mm-hmm. and everyone could have uh, an Apple in their house and, and Micro League Baseball was the most sophisticated baseball simulation along the lines of Stratomatic, which actually does a great do- job of teaching you the percentages of, of of baseball strategy and when to bunt, when not to bunt, when to run, when not to run. It's pretty interesting. But so micro league was a game I used to play a lot with my brother. And then 
one year they came out with this uh, uh, add-on disc that allowed you to not only just play the games but also trade players and construct your own teams. It's called the general manager slash owner's desk, and I, I fell in love with that right away, and it was, it was fascinating to make deals and construct your own teams, and looking back on it, it was probably pretty good training. Do you um, – um, you, you talk about um, uh, percentages, and and uh, obviously data has become a huge thing. Were you a kind of empirical guy back then? Was data something that interested you? Because you, yeah. you were a writer. I know you, you wrote. Yeah, yeah. I love to read, love to write. Um, I did pretty well at math, but, you know, I was, was no math savant at all. Um, I think I... I think I grew up appreciating the game from from both perspectives. You know, I played the game um, through high school. Was pretty good, you know, for a you know little Jewish kid from Brooklyn, <laughs> Mass. I was not not good by any other standard, but not the, uh, not another Hank Greenberg. No, no, and certainly not Sandy Koufax. But love love playing the game. Was always thinking about the game. Watched a ton of baseball in in person at Fenway. But lived a half a mile from Fenway Park, and watched a ton of baseball on TV. So. Uh, I could appreciate it um, from a traditional standpoint, the way a fan would, or, the, or even the way a scout would, watching players and thinking about what they might do next, projecting their future performance, so to speak. But then, I also got exposed to uh, Bill James' writings yeah. at a pretty young age. My dad bought me some of those abstracts in the, in the Bill James baseball abstracts in the early yeah, the 80s. father of sabermetrics. Yeah, yeah, he really, he really was. Um, he really is, and you know, it, in some, to some extent, it started with Branch Rickey. Mm-hmm. You know, hired a statistician, and he understood, um, you know, the importance of on-base percentage versus batting average, um, for example. But Bill um, was an amazing writer and quite the iconoclast, and was was publishing these uh, these truths about baseball, you know, from his from his basement essentially while holding down a job at a factory and um, or as a night watchman at a, at a Frank and Beans factory or something. And and um, you it's know, amazing. It, it really is, and 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 was quite quite the writer too. So you know, you ended up reading the whole thing cover to cover and. And uh, his principal, I know Sandy Alderson, um, who's currently the GM of the Mets and, and was the GM of the of the A's mm-hmm. in the late '80s through the '90s, was uh, was a, a fan of Bill's writings and applied some of those principles, and that helped those A's teams win and ultimately win a World Series. And then Billy Bean had picked up the mantle from Sandy. He was the assistant GM under Sandy, and then Moneyball really uh, you know, brought it to to more popular light, but. Yeah, so I, I grew up in reading Bill's uh, Bill's books and starting to look at the game from an objective standpoint as well, and understanding some of the basic truths with with the numbers of the game. And I think that's that's like basic truths. We'll talk a little bit about the basic truths that he uncovered. Just you know that the 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 best one to talk about is the one I just mentioned. You know that Branch rookie understood just because it's easy to. to grab onto just how how much more important on base percentage is to scoring runs than batting average for example and so the whole industry was based on batting average you know if you watched a game on tv they showed the hitters batting average Every, everything was about becoming a 300 hitter and it didn't matter how much you walked and how much you got on base but if you were trying to build a team to win you know winning is all about scoring as many runs as you can and, and preventing runs you would essentially ignore batting average and focus just on how much a hitter got on base. And Bill understood that. And I think 
Branch Ricky understood that, and that's why his teams won so much. And and Sandy understood that, and then Billy, and then the whole world with Moneyball. And of course, that's just the surface level um, insight. And you can drill. The great thing about baseball is you can drill as deep as you want. And there's so much more that we don't know about the game than we do. We probably understand you know three or four percent of the game, and the rest is is a great unknown that you can research just trying to find these slivers of insights that might help you. I want to I want to uh, talk a little bit more about that uh, uh, in a minute. Uh, Brent, you mentioned Branch Rickey. Um, in a lot of different ways, he seems like sort of the prototype of the modern baseball person in the way he approached personnel and the way he approached training and the way he approached, as you say, statistics. Yeah, I think he'll forever be the best baseball executive of all time uh, because of his innovation and really modernized the game and probably most importantly integrated the game you know, with, in a very courageous way uh, by signing Jackie Robinson. But yeah, he invented um, the, the modern farm system. He understood um, the importance of, of finding uh, quality through quantity, you know, by signing, you know, uh, hundreds of players to play in your farm system and through evaluating their performance, the best ones would rise to the top and was the first one to really under- understand the importance of statistics and evaluating players and projecting their future performance. You guys have this um, manual, the Cubs way, mm-hmm. and uh, but he he did that 60 years ago. Yeah, he had his his whole organization vertically integrated from top to bottom, uh, their entire farm system. And then um, th- out, out of his impact on the Dodgers came Al Campanis, and mm-hmm. he's the one who I think officially wrote the first manual, the, the Dodger way of playing baseball. Um, uh, Campanis wrote that, and that that helped lead the way to, to the Dodger dynasty, the 60s, and then I was working for the Orioles in the early 90s and, and saw uh, Cal Ripken Sr.'s Oriole way of playing baseball. So it made an impression on me, and I realized that if you wanted to get the whole organization on the same page about uh, how you wanted to play the game, how you wanted to teach the game, it was really important to codify it. So that was one of the first things we did at the Red Sox and then here at the Cubs. That was, I think, literally the first thing we did after the press conference, sat down together to define how we wanted to play the game. You uh, let's get back to your your narrative. You mm-hmm. you uh, so you followed the, your father's footsteps and you went to Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, David Leonard, who's now uh, a prominent columnist uh, at the New York Times, uh, told me that uh, when you were sports editor there, you were the best writer there. Um, but you were focused on baseball. Yeah, that doesn't speak well of the uh, the other writers at the Daily News at the Maybe time. Maybe false modesty. That's a nice compliment. Yeah, so I I went to Yale and um, my I was choosing between Yale and and, and Williams, which is a Division three school where where I, you could play baseball. Yeah, I would have hoped I could continue to play baseball and soccer, but ended up going to Yale and was not nearly good enough to play there. So was looking for other other ways to stay involved in sports and. The Daily News ended up being a great opportunity. I met met some great people and threw myself into that. And uh, it it also helped me realize I probably did not want to become a sports writer. Um, just got some exposure to professional sports writers, and and to me it seemed um, a little bit too solitary of a pursuit, too individual of a pursuit for me to pursue. But um, have a tremendous respect for for sports writers and and for the media as a whole. Were you? Um you're very you're good at it. I mean, you're good at uh, uh, 
uh, at dealing with those guys. I, I talked to some of them when I was working on a piece about you and the Cubs mm-hmm. for the New Yorker, and one guy said, uh, Theo can uh, give you an answer that has three meanings, and they'll all be true, which is a, a talent uh, to if people think you're not misleading them. Right. I mean, as an old reporter, and you're as an old reporter can appreciate that. So did that experience help you deal with with reporters? Yeah, I think it did. And then I, I also, in breaking into baseball, I got my first start uh, for a year or so in public relations. So I got to see the game from that standpoint, too. Tell, but, tell the story about how that happened, uh, your job with the Orioles. Yeah, so I wrote letters to um, a number of teams and uh, – Sort of, you know, the the old fashioned good old boy network Yale connection came through. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, but it ended up being a, a great break. Uh, Calvin Hill, uh, the great uh, Yale football player, the father of, of um, Grant Hill, the basketball player, um, and and still a big force in, in in sports. He's currently working for the Cowboys. But Grant Hill at the time, uh, Calvin Hill at the time was the vice president. Vice President of Administration for the Baltimore Orioles, he, and he got my cover letter and resume, and saw uh, Yale on it, and I, and um, I think I mentioned a couple of the research projects I had done on the on the Negro Leagues, and that caught his attention, and he ended up calling me. Um, we were uh, getting an early start on the weekend, one Friday, spring Friday at our at our dorm in as, Yale, as folks were wont to do yeah, in college, exactly. And uh, the phone rang, and it was. Uh, it was Calvin Hill with with the the Orioles. So I kind of snuck off into it at the one quiet room I could find, talked to him, and he invited me down. So I just interviewed with him and with uh, Charles Steinberg of the Orioles during my spring break freshman year, and got an internship, and it ended up becoming you know a great start. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Theo Epstein. So from Baltimore, you, now you're graduating from Yale, and you get this opportunity to go to San Diego. Yeah, so the, my my last internship with the Orioles ended in August of 1994 with the baseball strike that ended up canceling the World Series, the last uh, real labor, labor stoppage in baseball. So you know the the prospect of a of a job seemed to be waning at that point, and I started to apply to law schools and um, other other things I wasn't really all that interested in. Then I got a call out of the blue um, from Charles Steinberg and Larry Lucchino, who had. Uh, just gotten an opportunity out in in San Diego, and I'd never been to San Diego, but they offered me the job. There was about this ten. In, the this is with the Padres. There were there were ten. In, there was ten inches of snow out my uh, dorm room window in New Haven, so I said yes, sight unseen, <laughs> and accepted, and then flew out there uh, the day after I graduated to start new job and new life in San Diego. And you moved up pretty quickly in that organization. Yes, yeah, so I did PR for a year there, but. Uh, so you're dealing with reporters every day. Yeah, and then um, didn't didn't love it, but was working in baseball, and it's all that mattered. But I uh, befriended the general manager, Kevin Towers, uh, who at the time was uh, a new young general manager there, and we hit it off. Um, he was uh, he was he was married, and I was single and 21 right out of college. So he was kind of living vicariously through, <laughs> through me a little bit, and I got to hang around his office and listen to how they evaluated players and, and the different things that would go on in the baseball operations department. He took a liking to me and started taking me out to teach me how to scout, seeing amateur players, and then quickly brought me over to work in the base, baseball operations department, which was my ultimate dream. And you ended up running that department. Uh, at a, what, How old were you when 
Well, I didn't run. Uh, the general manager runs that yeah, runs but, that department, but I he, he promoted me to something called director of baseball operations, which is basically you know it, it's just the jack of all trades. I do a lot of things in the baseball operations department. So I was in, I was in my mid twenties, and uh, the great thing about the Padres at the time is it was a small market team, so we had to be resourceful, and it was a really small shop. So we're another organization might have had twenty folks in their baseball operations department in the home city. We had four or five, and um, so got to do a little bit of everything. Got to work in pro scouting, got to go out for the draft, got to help out in player development, got to help out on major league transactions. And it's really where I formed um, my, my current view of the game. My, my office was situated literally between uh, the scouting director and the statistical analyst that, that they had at the time. They were one of the first teams to have a stats guy on staff. And those two, the, the scouting director who saw the game really traditionally mm-hmm. would go out and evaluate players subjectively with his eyes. Um, he and the stats guy who would evaluate players objectively and didn't even want to see them play, would only want to see their track record. Those two hated each other. <laughs> um, but, but they both like me. Again, I think just because I was young and going out and, and um, eager. eager and yeah, and, and eager to please them and help them out, um, I got to hear – the best uh, from both of them and maybe some things I didn't agree with as well. And they would try to lobby me on why, you know, their way of seeing the game was the right way. And what I determined is that, the, you know, they were both great baseball guys and really insightful about the game, but that I thought I saw the clearest picture about players and, and about projecting players' future performance by looking through both lenses, by looking through the traditional scouting lens and at the same time also looking through uh, an analytical, more objective lens. And if you could find a transaction that made sense, looking through both those lenses, it was a, probably a pretty good move for your team. You know, the funny, the thing about the small operation is interesting to me because kids always ask me, like, how do you get to be, you know, the strategist for the president and so on? And, and how do you start? And I always tell them, to go find some small campaign where you can do everything and where, you, you know, you're not pigeonholed. And where you, if you're eager and you're willing to help, you can learn the whole, the whole deal. And the same is true, obviously, for you. Yeah, I think had I had I uh, worked initially at a big market team uh, that that would have had a bigger staff and maybe um, didn't have to be as um, innovative to solve problems or as aggressive and resourceful. It wouldn't have been the same experience. And what I always tell kids when they're first starting out in baseball is. You know, whoever your boss is or your bosses are, they, they have 20% of their job that they just don't like. And so if you can ask them or figure out what that 20% is and, and figure out a way to do it for them, um, you'll both make them really happy and improve their quality of life and their work experience and also gain you know invaluable experience for yourself. And if you do a good job with it, they'll start to give you more and more responsibility. And that's really what happened with me at the Padres. But you ended up back in Boston a few years later. Lucchino went back to Boston, brought you back there. Yeah. Um, Larry got involved with the new ownership group um, of the Red Sox in late 2001. And by the end of spring training, so March of 2002, he had brought me back there as assistant general. Any reluctance to leave San Diego? It's kind of a sweet life out there. It was. It was. I got to be out there from, from age 21 to 28 and had some great experiences. I turned down um, an assistant GM job elsewhere just to stay with the Padres um, at a lesser position because we had such a tight-knit group and 
it was such a nice life out there, but it felt like time. And really the Red Sox, that was my, my ultimate dream, right? I grew up half a mile from Fenway Park. I was a huge fan of the team. They were sort of the ultimate ivory tower franchise where um, you really had to, to know somebody. Um, it was the, Yawkey, the old Yaki, yeah. yeah, the old Yaki regime. And they were just a closed shop. And I didn't, even when I was working in baseball, it was a pretty insular operation over there at the Red Sox. And it, I, it was hard to ever envision myself working there. So when the opportunity came up to work for people that I really respected and to, to go over there as assistant GM, it was, a, it was an instant yes. And Kevin even supported, supported me and said, you know, you have, you have to take this opportunity. So a lot of people would be bewildered if I said there's a way in which Theo Epstein is just like Dick Cheney. But uh, you got assigned the task of trying to find a general manager for the Red Sox shortly after you arrived there. And somehow you ended up in the <laughs> job. How, how did that happen? Yeah. No, I'm, in, I'm innocent of any, <laughs> of, of any scheming, I, 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 I guarantee you. But no, I, I got the job in March of 2002. I was uh, named the assistant general manager. But there was no full-time general manager. There was an interim general manager, Mike Port. Dan Duquette had been fired a few months earlier as the full-time general manager. And what the owners decided was that we would go through the season with just an interim general manager and with me as assistant GM, and that they'd name a permanent general manager after the season. So um, we had a pretty good team in, in 2002, but didn't make the playoffs. And they tasked me with leading the search for our next general manager. And it led, uh, that led me to two individuals, um, J.P. Ricciardi, who was a disciple of, of Billy Bean, who was the at the time the general manager of the Blue Jays, but a, a Worcester native and someone who I thought would be really interested in the job. And uh, out of loyalty to the Blue Jays, he declined the opportunity. And then thinking big, uh, we decided to go after Billy Bean, who had had a tremendous amount of success um, with, was the, the, with the, the Oakland A's. would and, be immortalized in the pages of Moneyball and in the movie after this, you missed the opportunity to have Brad Pitt play you. <laughs> they would have to find a uh, less handsome actor for sure <laughs> had, had that been me. But, yeah, so we, we talked to Billy, and um, he actually accepted the job and and then um, did a lot of soul searching. And, and 24 hours later, uh, called me and, and told me that he just couldn't take the job. And there were he had put a lot of thought into it, and there were a lot of you know, very legitimate personal reasons why he couldn't take it. And leave family and move move 3,000 miles away. So now I've completely bungled the search for a full-time general manager, <laughs> and I have to go back with uh, uh, you know, my tail between my legs to, to my bosses and tell them that you know, the first two nominees that turned the job down. And so I did. And, and, um, so you failed up. I failed up. And, yeah, they, they eventually uh, caucused and, and uh, called me in and, and said, you know, you know, we've thought about it, and we just want you to do it. And uh, it was pretty stunning. You know, I was, I was uh, 28 years old at the time and had only been an assistant general manager for eight months, I think, um, at, the, at the time. And uh, it, it was a shock, and I didn't say yes right away because I felt I was, I was 28, but I was probably from an emotional maturity standpoint, I was probably younger than that. And I think that's what seven years in San Diego. Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe working in baseball too. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the more I thought about it, I had, it was just the opportunity of a lifetime. And, and I did feel like I knew the organization. Well, I'd been there for a season. I worked really hard to get to know everybody. I felt like I knew 
what our strengths were as an organization, what our weaknesses were, uh, what we had to do to, to take the next step. And I f- felt like I had, you know, been an observer of the game and had thought enough about the game where I could, I could do some good things. And I knew, I knew enough about what I didn't know too, that uh, I knew I'd have to surround myself with great people and really listen. And, um, you know, I just, I felt like it was an opportunity that I had to try to seize. But, but kind of daunting in your hometown, a premier job in baseball, like a, a marquee franchise. Uh, it had to be, when did it hit you that what am I into here? Yeah, because you become a public person. You're you're a, you're a pretty you're actually a pretty shy yeah. person, uh, and now you're the face of the Red Sox. That was my biggest he- hesitation, and those those fears were realized the the day I was announced as general manager. So I left my I lived really close to Fenway. I would walk to work, and. I was completely anonymous. You know, no, no one knows who the assistant general manager is, and for good reason. And I really cherish that anonymity. I am uh, probably more an introvert than I am an extrovert and just appreciated being nobody. I, I liked it. I was really happy in my, in my skin at that time as, as a completely anonymous worker bee at the Red Sox. And then that morning of the press conference, I walked downtown, and there were five TV cameras right on my front step you know, their cameras right in my face and followed me. Nothing I could say would get them to go away. And they <laughs> followed me every step on on the walk to Fenway Park and my heart was pounding. And I realized at that moment that, you know, my life had changed forever and, and that I had been thrust into this uh public sphere, um, that that in in these waters that would be uncomfortable and unfamiliar and I'd have to find a way to navigate to succeed. Well, the good news is, though, that Red Sox fans are very gentle <laughs> exactly. and forgiving, so you can make mistakes, and they would just say, well, he's learning, and that's important, right? Yeah, I'm sure they would have been fine with us. long learning process that only cost us a couple <laughs> seasons. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, the thing about sports and politics is that both are played under the watchful eye of millions, and all of those millions think they know better than you uh, what should what should be done, and uh, and they make their views known. Yeah, and and the media serves a role as a liaison between you know those who are actually um, in the trenches making the decisions and those who follow it with tremendous passion. And some and these narratives get created uh, sometimes by the intermediaries, um, and 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 so fans sometimes end up following the narratives more than they're actually following the reality of the game, and so getting a handle on those narratives and understanding them and knowing how to manage them and knowing how to protect yourself from them becomes really important. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back with Theo Epstein. Um, while you were at – you won the title in 2004, uh, and I, I need to advance the story because I'm burying the lead obviously mm-hmm. here but uh, in terms of what happened in this last year. Um, but I'm interested in a couple of things. One is um, you you talked before about uh, not wanting to be a sports writer because it was a solitary pursuit. And you've talked several times about surrounding yourself mm-hmm. with people and so on. One of the things that strikes me is um, is – and it's a little bit like political campaigns. I mean the thing about campaigns when they're good is that it is the act of a lot of smart, talented people coming together harmoniously and working toward one goal and supporting each other. And you seem to thrive 
on that. You you have this cadre of people who uh, who are still young, but they were very young when you brought them around you in Boston, uh, and that seems to be something that you that that gets your engine going. Yeah, I've always been that way since I was a kid. Um, you know, I I just really like being around other people um, who I like and trust and respect and. And and working towards a common goal is something that to me is is really rewarding. So any 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 individual pursuit, whether it's um, say you know playing golf instead of playing baseball or writing instead of working with others on a project, to me just isn't as meaningful. And I know it's great for some people, but I, I've always really gotten energy from other people, and I, and I love being shoulder to shoulder with with people that I like and respect. To and me. challenging each and other. And challenging each other. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I think that's one of the great things about team sports and why, you know, I'm encouraging my sons to play team sports is that you, you learn ab- about how rewarding that can be. And you don't always have to be the best player, but you, there's a role for you on the team and you support your teammates and the whole can be greater than the sum of the parts if you have the right attitude and if you really commit to, to the group. So that's the way we approached um, or the way I approached building a front office team as well. And I had no, when I got the Red Sox job at 28, I had zero management experience, um, very little leadership experience and certainly no you know, business school training or principles at all about about how to manage. So, uh, I think sort of out of necessity, I ended up just pulling people who I had worked with, who were like minded, who were about the same age, who had, who shared a passion for baseball, and who I had already worked with as peers. And so, I, I respected them and trusted them and knew that they were good. I, I pulled them close, and so we had a, an inner circle of six to eight guys, and we pulled all nighters together, and we went about reshaping the Red Sox together. And that next year in spring training, we all lived together. We we rented this little McMansion in uh, Cape Coral, Florida, near Fort Myers, and we just ate, breathed, and sleep baseball, and and um, had a ton of fun at the same time. And now now. If you look around baseball, you know, there's three, of three or four of those teams. guys have become yeah. general managers and they're all VPs and, you know, working. But you also apply that same standard to your teams. I mean, it seems like you spend a lot of time thinking about the cohesion of the group. Yeah, and it's something I didn't always believe in. You know, when I first started working in baseball, I felt that talent always would triumph in the end. And, that, and talent is, you know. Yeah, an exceptionally important ingredient. Yeah, it's a rate limiting step. You have to have the talent. But with every year that I've uh, spent in baseball, now it's uh, 25 years, um, I, I, I gained an increased appreciation for the importance of the chemistry of the group, the the importance of filling your clubhouse with as many good teammates as you possibly can, the importance of those connections, the relationships, the conversations. Mm-hmm. The buy-in to 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 a group uh, principle that that uh, that players have to have for you to have success, and it's it's not always the most talented team, but uh, the best group with the most talent. I think that wins. So when you evaluate players to draft or to trade mm-hmm. uh, or for trades to obtain, uh, how much do you examine their character and their approach uh, to other people? As much as we possibly can. You know, I think. I think fans would be shocked if if they could sit in a draft room, and this is not just us. I think this is most teams. But when you're assessing a, an amateur player for the draft, whether it's a high school senior or a college junior, um, if you spend in the draft room 
an hour talking about the player, I would say 40 minutes of the conversation is about uh, off the field issues, what makes him tick as a person, um, what's his background, what's his upbringing, what kind of teammate is he. And you ask the scouts to do what a lot of teams didn't before, maybe they do now, but to actually write essays on these kids and you give them objective tests and you evaluate these kids. Yeah, our our scouts have to get to know the player off the field really well, and they need to write a case for why we should bring this player into the organization, why he's going to be an asset for us beyond just his talent, why he's going to fit into a group, why he's going to be a contributing member of a championship team. And so they get to know the player over several years and chronicle all their interactions with him, and they, they list multiple examples of how the player faced adversity in his personal life and how he responded, how he faced adversity on the field in his, in his baseball life and how he responded, uh, how he treats his teammates, how he treats, um, the clubhouse guys, how, uh, what, what his girlfriend says about him, what his ex-girlfriend say about (laughs) him. Probably even more. Yeah. What his friends and enemies each say about him, what his guidance counselor says, his teachers say, and you get a pretty good feel for the player. And we really do focus on how, how a, the, the individual response to adversity because baseball is a game in yeah, which you fail all the time. Adversity is inher- failure is inherent in the game. Right. So if you don't respond well to adversity, you're probably not going to have any kind of a long career in baseball. And on top of that, we're taking amateur players who are uh, usually the best player on the field and these big fish and these little ponds and then thrusting them in, into an environment that's foreign to them where they're not going to have immediate success. They're going to be surrounded by other players who are more talented than them. And we're trying to project for these 17, 18-year-old kids how they're going to respond when when they're part of uh, hopefully a championship team 10 years later at age you know 27 and 28 when they're in their baseball prime. And so it's a really interesting endeavor, and our area scouts have to do a great job uh, predicting you know, how a player's personality will play in a group. It, we definitely factor that in. The other thing that you did in Boston was uh, pioneer this neurotesting, which is, uh, is, is still not the norm in baseball. But uh, talk about that. Yeah, so you know, these days, um, you know, 10 years plus past Moneyball, there's been and, – and, and deep into the information age, there, there's so much data out there that's publicly available that, that, that the landscape is really flat now. You know, all 30 teams have um, statistical information. They have analytical staffs. We're all – plumbing through the same numbers. And and you can get small advantages with uh, finding new streams of data and maybe analyzing it in a little bit more sophisticated way than someone else. You've got eight data analysts here at the Cubs, so you obviously invest a lot in it. Yeah, we do. We have a a huge data team, and and, and most teams do, and you have to just to stay current. But 10 years ago, you could get a huge competitive advantage by finding an insight, let's say, for example, in the draft, finding um, some metric – that you can use in assessing college players and their performance and projecting projecting it going forward into professional ball, and we did. But these days, it's so hard to find any competitive advantage based on exclusively on statistics that you have to get really because everybody's got the same. Everyone's numbers. got the same information. Mm-hmm. Everyone's hiring kids out of MIT and Stanford and Ivy League schools to with advanced math degrees to to dice up the numbers and, and kids and, who wanted to play baseball and couldn't. Yeah, exactly, and. Um, and so we, you have to look to other areas for competitive advantages. So years ago, the Red Sox um, 
we met these neuroscientists who were interested in what the brains of really great hitters look like and if they could learn anything um, from them. And so we, we developed a partnership with them where we gave them access to all of our professional players from David Ortiz and Dustin Pedroia down through um, through the lowest levels of the minor leagues, and they would test these players on pretty simple um, baseball simulations on a, on a computer, a little software. They look like computer games, video games, essentially. And in exchange, uh, we got some exclusivity for whatever insights they were able to derive from all this testing. And so after many years, they were able to develop some tests that um, – properly and accurately assessed the the different neural pathways that uh, a great hitter might have. And so, you know, the these tests would would identify the David Ortiz's and Dustin Pedroia's and, and, and rank them much higher than some of the, the lesser hitters and certainly higher than any layman who were totally on a different level. If they were to test you or I, we would, we would fail the test. And so we just used I'm these... I'm sure of that. <laughs> we would use these tests um, both for evaluative purposes. So we'd We'd take our laptops with us when we'd meet with high school players or college players we were thinking about drafting and give give them the test so we could learn. It's like a, a video bit. game. Yeah, like a video game. We'd ask them to play and we'd learn a little bit about how their brain worked and did they have the type of neural pathways that were the markers of maybe a future great hitter or were they just uh, you know, more ordinary. And then we also used it to help develop some of the skills that, that hitters need to, to thrive in Major League Baseball because the – the games are based on these algorithms that you can program them to make the game more and more difficult the better that you do. So let's say a simple one is reaction time. And it tests all kinds of things, reaction time, dynamic hand-eye coordination, inhibitory control, which is the So ability. can you hold up when you recognize what a pitch is? Yeah, when you, when you see a pitch that starts to be a strike and then you recognize it's going to be a ball, can you, can you check your swing and mm -hmm. stop? Or can you recognize spin on a ball and recognize it's not a fastball, it's a breaking ball, and then – and then change your mind about swinging. It tests all these things. And so we, we use it in the minor leagues to train our hitters because it's, you can't go out there and face live pitching day after day except in a game. You get, might get four or five at-bats in a game, but you can sit there on your laptop and take hours and hours of this sort of simulated baseball training. And what we found is you can actually improve the, the quality of the neural pathways in a hitter's brain a little bit and push them to, to new heights with reaction time, with inhibitory control, with hand-eye coordination. And it's been, so it's been a really useful evaluative and, and training tool. And, um, who are some of the players who emerged as a result of the, this test? There are players who you actually advanced yeah. in the process because of how they performed on, on this test. Well, one good example of the Red Sox is Mookie Betts who um, our scouts did a great job identifying. He was uh, a high school kid from Tennessee who was actually a better bowler than he was a baseball player <laughs> in high school, uh, but extremely athletic, great kid. And he was just tough to evaluate because he didn't go to all the showcases, so you didn't see him against great pitching. And you really had to project on the bat. Well, that was one of our first years during doing neuroscouting, and he – uh, scored just about 100 on all the tests. He, he pinned the test. It was at an elite level. And so that, along with the encouragement of our scouts, allowed us to move him up the board from maybe the 12th or 10th round up to the 5th round. Yeah. And that's, that's and he's he tw he's 23, 24 years old now and arguably one of the top two or three players in the American League. Yeah, I think he just finished second in the AL MVP voting this past year and is going to be a great player for years to come. And then here at the Cubs um, – the 
Kyle Schwarber's great neurotesting scores were just one, one of the factors that we used to, to move him up uh, in, the, in the 2014 draft when we took him fourth overall. But a lot of people thought that was uh, you, you had drafted him too high. Yeah, that was seen a little bit as an overdraft um, because he's not, you know— He's not poetry in motion out there gift, in the field. Yeah, he's not a super gifted defensive player as well. <laughs> I think the industry probably had him as a late first-round pick, and we took him fourth overall. But we had complete conviction about his bat— um, and about his character, and I guess about his brain as well. Obviously, you are, uh, you are now an iconic figure in Chicago history because you helped break this string. You spent 10 years in Boston. You had two titles there. Uh, first of all, what was, what was it like to be at these two? They had an 86-year, I think, mm-hmm. drought to be behind the building of organizations uh, that one, as you said, was well along. This one was a complete rehab, and to be there at those moments, what is that like? Well, so many, so many people contribute to uh, building a, a healthy and thriving baseball operation. Uh, but as I look back at my time in Boston, by far the most meaningful part, the part that resonates with me and has stayed with me the most, is the reaction. Uh, to winning the World Series in 2004 and ending 86 years of, of uh, futility and, and fans um, who never thought they might see the Red Sox win the World Series and who had grew up going to games with their parents and with their grandparents. And you, you never – And you, you were one really, of those I fans. was one of them, yeah. I was on, you know, when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs in 1986 in, in game six of the World Series against the Mets, the Red Sox were – uh, one strike away and one out away for about 40 minutes. I was on top of the couch in our den with my brother because when the ball, when the final out went into a Red Sox fielder's glove, we wanted to jump off the couch and be in midair when the curse ended. <laughs> so we ended up standing up. We were on top of our couch for 40 minutes, and when the ball went through Buckner's legs, we just crumbled down to the ground. <laughs> a really pathetic sight. But, yeah, so, you know, and that had been basically the experience of Red Sox fans for 86 years. And you, you – we couldn't realize until we won, until we saw fans' reaction, how personal it was to them, how being fans of the Red Sox and not winning and then ultimately having the team come through and win connected fans with their brothers and sisters, with their parents, with their grandparents, who had also waited, you know, who had literally waited 86 years to see it, and with those family members who hadn't quite made it all the way there. And when, when we landed at Logan Airport um, from St. Louis to drive back to Fenway, a drive we, we, we'd all made hundreds, thousands of times before, this one was special because uh, there were businessmen and businesswomen stopping us on the freeway, hugging each other. You saw construction workers crying on the side of the road, and we drove past a cemetery. And already, you know, less than 12 hours after we had won, you saw Red Sox pennants and Red Sox hats draped on on gravestones and um, people sharing this in the most intimate possible way with their family members. And it really transformed the lives of, of a lot of our of our fans. And probably not a day has gone by since that happened that some Red Sox fan hasn't come up to me and thanked me and shared his story and what it meant to him and his family. So it was just incredibly moving and, and just, it was – 
by far the most rewarding part, something I never thought I'd be able to feel in baseball, that you helped make an impact on that. Jed, Jed Hoyer, your general manager, mm-hmm. has been with you from the beginning of all of this uh, with the Red Sox, and you brought him here to the Cubs, said mm-hmm. that after you won that title, that Chicago became something to think about in the future because uh, – because you had experienced that, mm-hmm. and it was such a cool thing that this was that if that was a great mountain, this was Everest right here, Chicago. How much did that factor into your decision to come to Chicago and take over the Cubs, which is was a kind of epically moribund uh, organization? Yeah, it was. It was probably the most important factor. I think once you experience what we experienced in '04. Um, and you realize that all the the hard work and the sacrifice and the all-nighters and the camaraderie and everything that you put into a team to help them maybe win, when you, when you see that that can have an impact not just on your life and not just on the standings and not just, you know, with a pennant, but it can really impact people's lives, so many people and so positively, you can't – you never really get away from that. So – so we went from talking about the Red Sox in 86 years to talking about the Cubs and what at the time was just about a century of, of waiting. And so it was always in the back of our minds that, um, you know, if we ever do leave the Red Sox, it'll be hard to just go to any team, you know, just be, be hard to go to a team that maybe didn't have that passion in the fan base or that had had a lot of success recently and won world championships. And the Cubs stood out as the one place that um, we can maybe recreate some of that wonderful, elusive feeling of um, impacting people's lives that way. Did you, and you came here, but when you came here, what you found was a a lot of mediocrity. I mean, kind of an antiquated, not to, I know you don't want to denigrate your predecessors because they did some good things, and Mm -hmm. some of your players now you inherited, but um, it wasn't a 21st century operation. Yeah, it's it's interesting how how each organization evolves, Independently, you know, these 30 silos out there in the organization, they don't share a ton of information. So um, there's some common knowledge, but the, the Cubs are kind of the Galapagos almost where they, they had really they were really insular and they, you know, they were um, owned by the Tribune company. And in some ways, the just putting content on WGN mm-hmm. was, was the most important thing, maybe more so than winning. And 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 then there was the you know, not having won in almost a century. And there was this desire to almost make next year the year every year or make it appear at least that next year could be the year. And by so, buying a few free agents. Yeah, and- by going out and, you know, uh, you think convincing yourselves or convincing your fans you're one player away and throwing money at a free agency, at a free agent and not taking time to really build something up, a robust farm system, a long-term plan, um, you know, by and large, it was um, it was a great opportunity to start from the bottom. It was kind of a teardown, man. Yeah. We're sitting right by Wrigley Field, <laughs> which is basically being rebuilt yeah. uh, in place. And that's kind of what you had to do with this organization. There was no vertical integration of all the different layers of uh, the yeah. minor so, leagues and the majors. So when we got here, the, 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 Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, who hired me, um, gave me a really clear mandate to quote unquote do things the right way. You know, don't take any shortcuts. Build it the way you think a successful, healthy baseball operation needs to be built. And we didn't have much talent 
at the big league level, and we didn't have much talent in the minor league. Which is we a bad combination. Bad combination. <laughs> we're the most expensive team in, in the division um, and the least talented team in the division, the oldest team in the division. So <laughs> it was clear we had to start anew. And so the first winter, the most important thing we could do was not go out and sign a free agent. We weren't we weren't a player away. We weren't even six players away. We had to focus on building um, a robust baseball operation. So we started with our scouting department and hired some new scouts and then defined uh, what was important to us in the currency of the draft is going to is information. So we're going to go about changing the way we gather information and process information, use information. And then equally as important, if not more important, player development, the minor leagues. Um, it's, you can't in modern baseball succeed just by, you know, hiring a manager at each level, a coach at each level and throwing the players out there and, and let the, the most talented players rise to the top. Um, you have to, uh, you have to treat the minor leagues like almost like a university. Like you're 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 getting these 16 year old kids from the Dominican, 17, 18 year old kids from high school, 20, 21 year old kids from college, and you have to help turn them into men and help turn them into professionals and help groom them so they can step into Wrigley Field in Chicago in the middle of a pennant race and play championship caliber baseball, which we just saw. Yeah, so we all got together as the first thing we did in player development. All of our scouts, all of our minor league coaches and managers and coordinators and major league staff, we all gathered um, at a hotel in, in Mesa, Arizona. And for four days, we talked about how we wanted to play the game, what we wanted to stand for as an organization. So the Dodgers had their way in the, the 50s and 60s and the Orioles had their way in, in the 70s. What, what would the Cubs weigh? of playing baseball be? What would it mean to be a Cub? So we spent a day on hitting, and we didn't all agree, but we got to some common ground. And we, we, we really borrowed quite a few things from the Red Sox and some of the bigger principles I wasn't going to stray from, like controlling the strike zone was going to mm-hmm. be a fundamental core of our hitting program. But you know there was tremendous collective baseball wisdom in the room, and, and we didn't know where we were going to end up. And we talked through it together. We ended up with a hitting philosophy and a hitting program. Day two was pitching. Day three was um, defense and, and, and base running. And day four was about makeup and character, what type of individuals we wanted to attract to our organization as players. And so we ended up with a Cubs way, and we wrote it all down. It became our manual and our Bible, and it's a living, breathing document that changes each year. But it became this common vision we could all agree upon of what we wanted to become, how we wanted to teach the game, what we'd look like when we had gotten there. And so the, the hard work of, of uh, turning around a franchise really started at, at that level where you know, we got most talented and, and we had the best morale at the low minor leagues. You know, and of course, at this time, we also, instead of going out and signing Prince Fielder or Albert Pujols, who were free agents that winter, we had a vacancy at first base. We traded for Anthony Rizzo. And that next year, we drafted Chris Bryant. And the year after that, Kyle Schwarber. And, and made some other trades to bring in young talent. So we were single-minded about bringing in young talent. And about telling the fans what you were doing. Yeah, we were. so we were transparent about it. I feel like it maybe wouldn't have worked in a big market to rebuild without just being completely open and honest and transparent about our plans. You kind of let everybody know that they were going to kind of suck for a while. (laughs) Yeah. uh, 
Well, we said I didn't. I wasn't quite that blunt. I think I said, "Look." But everybody knew what you meant. Yeah, I said every season is important, and and if you have a chance to win, you have to take it. But planning for the long term is more important. And so, where those two ideals collide, our, our short term interest and our long term interest, we are going to defer every time to our long term interest. And you got everybody interested in these kids you were drafting. I mean, people were reading the the box scores from uh, South Bend and and Iowa. Uh, more with more interest yeah. than they were reading the the box scores from Chicago. I think baseball fans as a whole love to follow young players. You know, they they love to maybe go to a minor league game or read about a player when he's in the minor league and see him perform, and then they almost feel a connection to that player and then can track him through the levels of the minor leagues and when he debuts, and then maybe struggles but then goes on to become a good player and then an all star, then part of a world champion. They can say, well, I saw that player. When he was an A baller, I knew that player was going to be good when they drafted him, and and our fans really embraced that and, and dove into it. And, and my son uh, Ethan, who's a, a, a an, an avid uh, baseball fan and mm-hmm. Cubs fan, every day was emailing me some some obscure clip about some obscure player, and uh, and I mean was totally into yeah. watching all of these these players evolve. And there was a real dichotomy in the organization through those through those early years because we were having tremendous success um, in the draft and in the minor leagues and some trades that we pulled off went really well. And and we had this really great group of talented players with high character in the minor leagues who were thriving. And we'd sit up in the box at Wrigley while we're watching our major league team play. And we'd say, Oh, you know, Bryant just hit another (laughs) homer or Schwarber just doubled in the gap. And, we started to envision what this core might look like in a couple of years when they'd be playing on the field together at Wrigley. But meanwhile, our big league team, understandably, because we hadn't put a lot of resources and into And you were it, trading a bunch of guys We traded to get 40% more of our starting rotation three years in a row. I mean, we mm-hmm. put our fans through so much and our managers through so much and our, and our major league players through so much just by depleting the team to acquire more young players. But the dichotomy was, you know, so we'd be in this great mood watching our minor league players play and maybe going out to see the AA team play or – um, in an instructional league, and then we'd come back, and then our big league team would lose, and we'd have to literally wipe the smiles off our faces. So going down into the clubhouse, because then you know we had to have the post mortem from another loss and mm-hmm. deal with some players who weren't happy, and with the manager who was suffering through these long seasons. Right. So, if but it was exhilarating. I think all of us at the Cubs, especially the minor league players and the minor league coordinators and coaches and the scouts, we all felt like we were in on a secret. So we were getting. A lot of criticism, deservedly so, because we were in last place and there was a lot of skepticism and we weren't spending money. And But we all felt like we were in on this great secret. Like, look how talented our young players are. Look how good we're going to be when Bryant's at third and Baez and Russell are in the middle infield and Rizzo's mm-hmm. at first and Schwarber's behind the plate or in left field and Almora's in center. Look how good we're going to be. And these are not only really talented players, but they're great guys and they care about each other and they're proud of being Cubs. You know, that's Cub went from being sort of a, an insult or, or some sarcastic mocking term for when something would go wrong on the field. In our minor leagues, when someone would say, that's Cub, it became a great compliment. Like, hey, you had just made a great play or backed up a base or helped out a teammate. So we felt like we were in on this great secret and we just couldn't wait until our fans and, got to see it play out in front of them here at And you, Field. you added a, a, a really big component a couple of years ago when you went out and got Joe Madden to manage the team. You had rejected him when you were in Boston. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I don't know if it was. I mean, he we did give him the silver medal. I mean, we he was a bench coach for yeah, this. Isn't the, horseshoes, man. You either get the job or you don't. <laughs> no, we, yeah. So we when I was hiring um, to replace Grady Little after the '03 Red season in Boston, the two finalists for the job were Terry Francona and Joe Madden. Yeah. And we chose Terry, and uh, Joe ended up a couple Not years. Not a bad choice. Yeah. So it worked out well for Terry, worked out well for the Red Sox. And then I think it worked out well for Joe because um, he ended up getting the job with the, with the Rays, who were essentially an expansion team. And he could operate in a small market in Tampa with all young players with no expectations. And it was like a great Petri dish for him. Where mm-hmm. He could try out his unconventional style, and he could be himself, and he could – he could do things that would have been highly criticized in Boston and get away with it in Tampa and and really be himself and figure out that, hey, I can do this at the big league level. So I think it worked out great. Just as Terry Francona had to go through his Philly years to get to Boston, I think Joe and, and what the outstanding job he did in Tampa helped set him up for a greater success. Yeah, and he came Chicago. here as a confident and he was. accomplished manager. He knew who he was. He knew he, he had to only be himself in order to succeed. And uh, What he, makes him so unique as a manager? Um, I think what makes Joe unique is he has an incredible knack. He's about 62 now, I think. He's this incredible knack for connecting with players 40 years his junior and instantly putting them at ease, um, communicating to them, not just by telling them, but through his actions, that all they have to do is be themselves and have fun and prioritize winning, and they'll be accepted. And that's really hard. You know, it sounds simple, right? It's kind of what we want all our teachers to do in some way. But in baseball, that's really noteworthy because there had been this um, sensibility in baseball where young players, when they came up, were to be seen and not heard. And where they had to almost go, go through sort of a hazing of sorts from from the veterans, they had to really cut their teeth for many years before they'd have the ability to let their personality out at all and to be heard in the clubhouse. And Joe really deconstructed that sensibility and said, like, no, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter what you've done in this game. All that matters is that you are genuine and that you're yourself, and that we have fun together and right. play hard together. You know, what's, what's, uh, what was really interesting to me was how um, much he took the pressure off of these kids. And, like, I know from my own experience, I think presidential campaigns are a little like camp uh, baseball mm-hmm. seasons, and they have peaks and valleys. And you know you're going to hit the valleys, and there are going to be some times when everybody, uh, you know, when all the – millions of people who watch are going to offer their helpful advice about <laughs> what you should be doing. And keeping your head about you and not losing focus is a really hard thing to do. And to have a leader who can communicate that and keep you at ease and focused seems uh, extraordinarily valuable. Yeah, he came along at just the right time. So it was, it was right at that moment when our young players were starting to come up um, to the big league level, and there was, and and they had to start competing and winning some games, and all the scrutiny that would have gone to them really went to Joe instead because he's a ma- he's just masterful with the media. He's I've never seen anybody as beloved by the people who cover him as yeah. he is. And as much as politicians have to talk to the press, a major league manager has to talk to them much more. Right, it's, it's twice a day. 162 times in 183 days, plus yeah. spring training, plus the postseason. So you have to come up with something new and something newsworthy and something usable for them before the game and after the game. And that's really hard, and it can lead to a contentious relationship. But Joe 
was just born to do it, and he's just naturally entertaining and and, and uh, interesting and genuine. Yeah. And so he entertains them, and he even communicates to his players through the press sometimes. Where if we play a bad game, and uh, you know there's some tough questions after the game, he will just say we're. No, we're fine. Did you see these four great things that happened? And um, I know this player made a key error in the eighth inning, but he did such a good job um, backing up a base in the second. That's what's going to win us games. He just needs to keep playing hard. He's completely on the right path. Just saying it to the media, but the players pick up on that, and they feel supported by him. Yeah. You mentioned Tom Ricketts, who's kind of an unsung hero in the story here because he gave you the time and space to do what you uh, needed to do. You I'd be remiss given who I am and the nature of this podcast not to ask you this question. <laughs> you come from a pretty liberal um, vantage point, a progressive mm-hmm. vantage point. You, you, you're not in politics, but you were supportive of Barack Obama when he ran for office. You did an event for Hillary Clinton. The Ricketts family is slightly to the right of that. Uh, and uh, well, Most of them. Yes, not Laura Ricketts, but Tom Ricketts' uh, brother, Pete, is the governor of Nebraska, quite conservative. Todd Ricketts is about to join the Trump administration. Um, uh, Does does that ever become an an obstacle at all, or does that stuff get parked away? uh, Baseball gives us a lot to talk about besides politics, which is is great. But, you know, I've never been one – who feels that uh, you know if if you disagree with someone about politics, you can't connect with them in other ways, or be friends with them, or work constructively with them. So there are differences. I think it's it's probably more interesting when the four Ricketts siblings you know get on their weekly conference calls to discuss the state <laughs> of the team and family affairs because um, Laura is. Progressive um, leader in Chicago uh, yeah, and around the country. A big leader of the progressive movement here in Chicago and nationally. And and um, as you said, Pete is now the governor of Nebraska. And Todd um, raised a lot of money uh, both against Trump early in, and in, during him. the primary and then for him later on is about to join the administration. And, and Tom usually focuses just on baseball. So I'm sure you know those calls are you know would draw high ratings if, if you would uh, <laughs> ever um, – put them on the air. But, you know, by and large, we, we stay away from that. And Tom, and Tom, I told Tom, because the Ricketts did some, some uh, you know, from time to time, they do some f- fundraising for conservative candidates. And I, when that happened and it becomes linked with the Cubs in the, in the public sphere, I felt an obligation to maybe balance it. And so I asked Tom, I said, look, I feel like I need to do um, an event. Well, this isn't in, in, in uh, in 12, I said, I feel like I need to do you know, an event for Obama. And he was fine with that. He said, yeah, that's totally fair. He said, just don't try not to make it all about the Cubs, but, mm-hmm. but you go, go and do it. We just did an event for a Republican and then in this year did an event for Hillary. So uh, you, just keep an open mind and communicate. You don't have to agree about politics all the time to agree about, about baseball and about the Cubs. You left the Red Sox after 10 years, and uh, you told me that you felt that 10 years is about as long as – People are willing to listen. You just signed another contract uh, with the Cubs that would take you for 10 years. Uh, What do you see the future for you now that you've scaled Mount Everest here? Well, I think we have a lot more work to do at the Cubs, first of all. I mean, the the last time the Cubs won a World Series in 1908, it was uh, a back-to-back championship. They won in 1907 as well. So that's a great short-term goal for us. And, And 
and we have the opportunity to win a lot. And I think our fans deserve that because they they've been through a lot, both 108 years, and then even the last five years, we've we've asked so much of them patience and understanding and. We'd love to win a lot, you know, especially over these next five years. We have our best players under control uh, through 2021, basically the whole nucleus. And we'd love to go out and, and become one of those teams like uh, like the Yankees or the Braves that's synonymous with October baseball and, and plays in and hopefully wins multiple World Series. But, you know, I haven't thought much beyond that. Um, I love baseball. I think I'll, I'll always have a passion for it and will always want to be connected with it in some way. And could you owning um, a team sometime? Um, sure. Yeah, I think it, I think you can do things um, as an owner that you can't necessarily do as an employee, with, um, helping the team really get involved in the community and and doing some great work using using baseball as a vehicle to to do some important. And work you in do society. some stuff in the community, uh, particularly inner city baseball and. Yeah, well, my brother, my twin brother, is a social worker, and um, so I I try to view the world through his eyes and he's always telling me about what's really going on in the trenches and the reality is you know these days um so much of the most important work in society is done um by these nonprofits you know m- most of which don't get real government funding and and um so it's really important to um identify the most impactful nonprofits in your community especially in a city like Chicago right now that has is battling so many uh, critical challenges, and then support them. And again, baseball is it's just bread and circus, right? I mean, what we do, we just entertain the masses. And of course, at the certain moments, it becomes really meaningful to people and transcends that. But by and large, it's bread and circus. But there are rich fans who are willing to spend money to get access to games and sit in better seats or sit in the general manager's box or get autographs or have these experiences going to dinner with players or with general managers. And if you can, if you can use that and, and raise some money and redirect it to nonprofits. I think that's that's a great thing and really our responsibility in some ways. Uh, so yeah, so my brother had this idea to start a foundation, which we started uh, uh, 11 years ago now. I think we've raised $8 bucks for, for nonprofits, both in Boston and Chicago along the way. It's, been, great. it's been a lot of fun. You, um, We should end with, we never finished the discussion of, you talked about what it was like in Boston mm-hmm. when Boston won the World Series. I, I was out of town when the big rally took place mm-hmm. here in Chicago, but no one's ever seen anything quite like it. What, what was your reaction when you saw it? I mean, the, the crowd estimate was 5 million or something. There are only 3 million or less than 3 million people who live in the city of Chicago. Yeah, and 5 million people would make it, I guess, the seventh uh, largest gathering in of humankind and the history of civilization. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. So you could go for sixth a, next year. Yeah. That's another thing. To, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how accurate the estimate was, but I'll tell you the rally was the, the, the parade was incredible in that we kept getting, you know, we, we started in, in um, Lake Wrigleyville and Lakeview and went down Lakeshore drive and then onto Michigan Ave and made our way downtown and we kept getting to a point where you could see nothing but people and nothing but blue and nothing but uh, exultation and people hugging each other and cheering the players. It was a sea of people. And we, we felt like that was the pinnacle. That was where the parade, <laughs> the end of the parade route was. And we must be at the end. And this is the moment. And there must be a million people we can see right here. But we just kept turning corners and then onto Michigan Ave and then – 
you know, back on to, to Ontario and to Chicago. There were probably 20 moments like that. Yeah. It just was endless. And um, It's a beautiful thing when a community which does have problems and does have divisions, it's like a civic communion in which everybody takes part. Yeah, that was the most wonderful part. Or the, two, the two most wonderful parts, how it connected families and everyone seemed to watch the last out and celebrate it with their families yeah. and connect around something um, so wonderfully. And then it also connected the city where, you know, it is divided in a lot of really important ways and we are fighting critical life and death challenges as a city, but um, for really a whole month. And, and, and even since then, the city has been completely united behind this team and the wonderful accomplishment. And we've seen the best of Chicago since, I mean, people in great moods and smiling and working together and, um, waiting through the cold winter together for, for spring training to come. As always, counting the days until pitchers mm-hmm. and catchers report. Theo Epstein, thanks for this, and thanks for what you've done for the city. It really has been uh, an extraordinary thing to watch. Thanks for those words. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.